You're listening to Inspirational Decency, Episode 0, The Burlap Sacrilege. Gah! I am so mad at you. All of you, out there in the ether, listening to your dumb radios or computers or whatever. Just who do you think you are? Oh, and by the way, if you're transcribing this episode, remember that when you type out who do you think you are, you should add a question mark and two exclamation points at the end in order to fully express my crippling rage. Yeah, that's right, two of them, because that's just how mad I am at all of you. Oh man, where do I even begin with you ditch pigs and lipstick thugs? How about you, Nick in Milwaukee? Put down your twin cans of tongue moisturizer and listen to me. How dare you embarrass me like that? Wrestling away that Winchester rifle from me? And in front of that entire cathedral? That was the worst christening I've ever been to, said many of the attendees, with their eyes. I swear you will feel the full force of my fury, just as soon as I can get over the crippling feeling that my friends don't like me anymore, and are just attending my one-man show Sponge of Sorrow out of pity. But I swear, once I manage to convince myself that there are some people who care about me in this world, and that no one is out to sabotage my attempts to invent a solar-powered darkroom, I am so coming after you with guns bared and teeth a-spittin'. And how about you, Abigail in Toronto? I can't believe you told the media about my plans to revive both the political career and the remains of John Diefenbaker. In ten years, when they make a CBC miniseries based on his life, death, and eventual reanimation, at the hands of a handsome yet self-effacing scientist who is praised by everyone as a visionary and is not at all mocked because of the way he smells. It is you who shall be portrayed as the villainous snitch who tried to prevent Zombie Diefenbaker from coming back to life and providing every Canadian with affordable, environmentally friendly electric guitars. In the meantime, you better believe I'll get even with you, mainly by uttering empty threats under my moonshine-scented breath and by not inviting myself to any more of your parties. And then there's you, Alan in Birmingham, England. You really played me for a fool. You also played me for a flute, which felt pretty awkward, especially since there was an actual flute five feet away from the reservoir. In any case, I do not appreciate the way you tricked me into learning a wide array of fake British slang. It offers me little solace now to know that Britons do not refer to using Twitter as wobbling the bean, that they do not call a pulled pork sandwich a bobsy in a boot, and that a taxi driver is not known throughout the UK as a todger of the tubes. I hereby demand that you meet me in Brixton sometime in July for a bare-knuckle boxing match, which, according to you, is known in England as tossing the toenail pudding. There are many more of you who have recklessly provoked and betrayed me in ways both large and small. I will not list all of you here, since your names, locations, and offenses have been catalogued in a directory entitled Enemies of Valor, that will soon be available in all bookstores, libraries, and senior center common rooms. Be assured, however, that I will be expecting all of you who have maligned me so viciously that I have not forgotten your crimes, and I am indeed expecting you to compensate me. Whether your penance be in spoken, dance, or geological form, be sure to deliver it to me no longer than a week after you hear this message. Keep in mind that I have severe allergies to both dairy and whimsy. Remember, too, that certain representations of love and friendship make me feel inadequate and ashamed. Having said that, I welcome your forced generosity. Enjoy the show, you irredeemable little rascals. So, um, 
I guess it all started when I lost my snow pants at that uh, Overeaters Anonymous meeting. I attended those uh, every Thursday night in the basement of my local Lutheran church. I uh, have a thing with gorging myself on chips and entire pizzas, uh, sometimes just out of boredom. Uh, I have a void inside of me, one that uh, stems from fear, self-loathing, and I try to fill it with food. I've been doing it for years, and it, it's never worked. But I know that if I just keep eating, then one day I'll, I'll finally be happy. And then I can keep eating more, because then I'll be happy. Uh, anyway, it was an especially cold uh, and snowy night, and uh, I'd driven my snowmobile to the church, because I uh, like to pretend that I was Steve McQueen, uh, starring as an Alaskan hitman in the 1973 thriller White Privilege. So I wore my snow pants to the meeting. Uh, they were really special snow pants that I really regret losing. Uh, they were lined with a really warm fabric that insulated me from the taunts of certain cruel, beauty-obsessed youth ministers. After the night's meeting, during which I confessed to sucking a carton of melted butterscotch ice cream through a straw fashioned from my community college diploma, while watching Cagney and Lacey reruns through Tyne Daly's living room window, I went to the coat closet to fetch my snow pants. They were missing. As you can imagine, I became enraged. I approached Timu, a Finnish businessman and fellow overeater, who had become famous in his native country for orchestrating the disappearance of his own chest hair. Hand me your cell phone, I barked at him. I need to call the fashion police. Timu scoffed. What are you calling the fashion police for? The fashion police are corrupt and inept. I can get you a new pair of snow pants for free from my snow pants factory. In fact, he continued with a smile that was oilier than a plate of Portuguese chicken, which is not a finished dish. I can get you a job there if you want. You have to promise me one thing, though. You can't report any of the workplace violations, Finnish mafia transactions, or drunken catfighting that goes on in that factory, no matter how much money the police are able to offer you for this information. And believe me, they will offer you a lot. More than you've ever imagined dreaming about fantasizing about seeing. So that's why I want you to take the oath, he proclaimed, removing the 20-foot Finnish flag he'd been draped in and throwing it to the floor. You have to swear on this flag that you will never inform on me and my operations. There are no loopholes in this agreement. Unless you are thinking the word not to yourself as you shake my hand, he explained, his Finnish accent sharper than a bowl of tzatziki sauce, which is not a Finnish dish. And so my tenure as Timu's protege at the factory began. Every utterance and decree recorded on a tiny microphone I had hidden inside a large fake microphone I wore around my neck. Whenever people asked me about that microphone, I simply explained to them that they were on a Hungarian hidden camera prank show called Public Video Stranger Humiliation Tragedy. Then, one day, Timu called me into his office. He was eating a large gyro, which is not a finished dish. So I talked to my cousin Mackie, who lives in Budapest, he barked, and he tells me that you could not possibly be taping things for a show called Public Video Stranger Humiliation Tragedy, because that show doesn't exist. Or at least not since it went off the air two years ago. Well, that was it. My cover was blown. Thinking quickly, I began to cry, then leaped through the second-story window behind him and landed on top of a moving gefilte fish truck. Having escaped his clutches, I am now a member of the Witness Protection Program. 
living a humble life as a farmer in Iowa, and attempting to develop an American remake of public video stranger humiliation tragedy. Not to brag, but Chuck Woolery is attached. Anyway, if there's one thing I want people to take away from my story, it's that Finland is the worst country in the entire world. And now, a man reads his will, via videotape, to his bereaved family. Welcome to the reading of my will. This reading of my will is sponsored by the BASF Corporation. BASF. Money flows in, but it doesn't flow out. And by Ludicrous Systems Incorporated, pursuing control through innovative aggression since a really long time ago. I hope that this occasion does not prove to be too distressing for you, my beloved family. To that end, I hope you enjoy the post-reading performance of insult prop comedian Thwack. Sit back and let Thwack make hilarious sport of our shared quirks and foibles by somehow using a plate with a strobe light attached to make fun of your weight. In any case, before you all get Thwacked, I should first announce the division of my money and possessions. To my wife Marla, dear sweet Marla, I bequeath all you can eat. To my son, Peyoder, whose greatest gift will always be his ability to keep others from getting excited, I hereby leave my eight cases of non-toxic proximity spray, meant to disarm and disable potential friends. To my daughter, Slinky, she of the inebriated smile and elastic spine, I leave my collection of half-hearted apologies for my role in the 1973 stink bombing of the American Embassy in Tokyo. Sprinkle those liberally as ye may. To my dear cousin Elgin, whose constant love and support gave me the breath of life and inspiration, I leave an hour-long cassette recording of me breathing heavily and muttering, Daddy loves my scrunchie. Daddy loves my scrunchie. I only hope this recording is as evocative for you of that fateful summer of 1966 at military improv camp as it is for me, dear chum. To my cat, Jermsey, I give a brief yet deep bow of acknowledgement, for that is all you deserve. To my indeterminate friend, Boo, I hereby bestow eight out of twelve, while my housekeeper, Connie, will receive two out of the remaining four. The final two, meanwhile, will be sprayed and shattered, as scripture demands. Lastly, my niece, Veranda, will receive the home game of today's reading, and a $5 bill coated in vinegar. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, it's time for the main event, the man you've really come to see, one-and-a-half-time non-consecutive winner of the South Sarasota Community College Comedian of the Month, the man who feverishly gestures truth to power. Loved ones, please welcome Thwack. Woo! And also, I love you all. Good night. And now, another installment of Half-Remembered Theater. This week, a man half-remembers the plot to Citizen Kane. Okay, so you've heard of Citizen Kane, probably. Um, it's A lot of people say it's like one of the best movies of all time, and uh, usually during a, a one of those like, uh, like a film poll, a lot of like international 
polls among film critics, it's usually uh, ranked either number one or you know in the top five. Um, American Film Institute, for one, uh, I think they've done a few um, where Citizen Kane has come in at number one. So yeah, it's uh, kind of like uh, one of the great movies in American film and cinema and movies. Uh, so anyway, so the plot is, it is about a man named Kane, uh, Charles Foster Kane, and uh, he is uh, kind of like born rich. And there's a really funny scene near the beginning, I think, where uh, it shows him as like an infant, kind of like being born into like a big pile of money. Like uh, you see like his mom is in labor and she's like, ah, get him out of me. And uh, so he comes out and it's not, well, it it doesn't get too graphic, but needless to say, she comes out uh, and uh, yeah, you just see him. Uh, like just sitting and crying in a big pile of money, and uh, the doctor's just like, "Man, this is the weirdest delivery I've ever been a part of." Uh, can I ask why you had your son delivered into a pile of money? And so uh, his father, who is sort of looking on, watching the whole delivery, he just says, "Because I want him to know what his future is going to be." And then uh, the camera does this like really intense close-up into the father's eyes, and there are dollar signs there. And then it uh, does this kind of like dissolve into um, like you know Charles Foster Kane um, graduating from university or from college, and uh, so his uh, family pull they're they're in the their family's backyard after the ceremony, and they pull out this big vat of money, and his father just kind of looks at him and says, "You were born once." And now you are born again as a great newspaper man and tycoon. Enjoy, son, and we're going to have a big party with your friends. And so, again, I, I, it's been a while. I should say it's been a while since I've seen this. I'm just kind of trying to recall this. I could be mistaken. Anyway, so then cut to him being dead. Like, this is after he's dead. Uh, this is like a flashback, and now the movie is telling us that he's died, and there are a lot of interviews with his friends, like there's a uh, reporter who's trying to piece together the story of his life, like what was his deal, what was he like as a person, what defined him, and so it's just, most of the movie after that sort of brief flashback at the beginning is this reporter trying to piece together the story of Charles Foster Kane, and so... uh so uh, a lot of the movie uh, is just sort of showing his like his rise to like mega power. Um, so towards the end of the movie, like one of the recurring themes is that Charles Foster Kane's last words were "Rosebud," and so one of the things the reporter is trying to figure out is what "Rosebud" means, and no one knows. Like they talk to like he talks to Kane's uh, you know dermatologist, his girlfriend. Uh, I think there was one character who was like his dermatologist and his girlfriend. Yeah, and so he keeps trying to figure out what Rosebud means. And then at the very end, and this is like a spoiler alert for those for people who haven't seen it, uh, it shows, uh, you know, it shows Kane on his deathbed clutching a sled. And then he just kind of laughs and says, Rosebud. And then he takes out a marker and scrawls Rosebud on the sled. And then uh, he just kind of throws the sled aside into the fire. There's a fireplace next to the bed. And so the sled is burning up, and uh, as he dies, you can see uh, Kane kind of, well, you hear his thoughts. Like, those are his last, his last word was Rosa, but you hear his thoughts as he's dying. He's like, this is gonna really make people angry. 
I'm not only rich, I'm very funny. And then he, uh, he just kind of dies. And then you see his uh, soul ascending to heaven. And as he ascends to heaven, he's kind of looking out onto the city, onto this vast kind of like aerial view of New York. And uh, as he's sort of rising up into heaven, um, the last words he says, the last, word, last line of the movie, in fact, is, uh, is just like, man, I really, really wish that uh, I'd eaten a lot more sandwiches. It's just bread and meat or cheese. Crazy. So that's Citizen Kane. And uh, I think you can buy that uh, on Netflix or whatever, rent it. I don't know. What, what, is, what, the, what is Netflix? Well, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are wondering what ever became of my R&B alter ego, Mr. Boyfriend, I am here to clear a few things up. I have decided to kill off Mr. Boyfriend because when it comes to R&B-related alter egos, Mr. Boyfriend was rather hackneyed, if I do say so myself. His over-reliance on references to freaking and variations thereof and thereon simply became rather ponderous and predictable after a while. I simply did not feel that uh, Mr. Boyfriend represented the true extent of my talent. And so I would, in this very segment, like to debut my new R&B alter ego, Manflap Lovealicious. Now, Manflap Lovealicious hails, of course, from the town of Decatur, Georgia. And uh, for a while after high school, he ran a catering business called Decaterers, which uh, no one liked. No one liked that name. He wasn't much of a caterer. He uh, often promised things like uh, filet mignon or uh, uh, filet of sole, that kind of thing. And usually he would end up having to serve frozen lasagna. And when I say frozen lasagna, I don't mean lasagna that was frozen at one time and is now reheated. I mean lasagna in a frozen state. This resulted in his expulsion from the Georgia Caterers Union, which resulted in, of course, as all expulsions from the Georgia Catering Union Association thing do, in uh, being thrown into the Mississippi River, which is not near Georgia. They had to drive out to the Mississippi River uh, with a series of lobster mandibles attached to his back. He floated in the Mississippi River, lobster mandibles attached to his back, for a period of eight days, subsisting only on meat 
he had uh, expertly extracted from his thighs. And drinking a kind of sports drink known as Bang. That is literally the name, quite literally the name of this uh, particular energy drink. Bang. It is unclear to me how he managed to find Bang along the way. Uh, I can only assume that uh, kindly Georgian villagers handed him bottles as he floated by, but were too amused and too cowardly to phone the authorities and have him rescued. Anyway, that is neither here nor there. Eventually, of course, he became an R&B superstar, and uh, you'll hear more from him in the coming episodes, unless I grow bored with him as I just did. You will never hear from him again. But what you he- will hear from again is me, just plain old me, the brutal yet handsome radio monarch who rules these fair airwaves with a velvet tongue and an aluminum fist encased in the finest cheese. Oh, who to thank? No one. I have no one to thank this this week. I did it all on my own. And I did it my fashion. Early draft of that song. Little known fact. Speaking of little known facts, this little known show is now done. And that is now a somewhat known fact. Goodbye, and remember, cake for all. Fish, I don't think so.